Hey guys, I'm Eric Olson and welcome to the Science Centric Podcast. A little over a week ago, Google announced they had achieved something called quantum supremacy. It sounds a little nefarious, right? Like some kind of evil plot to take over the world. While we can all relax at least a little bit for now, it turns out that the supremacy is just a powerful new way of computing that makes use of quantum principles. Google claims its quantum processor can tackle a really difficult computational problem in about two and a half minutes, a task that would take the fastest classical computer about 10,000 years. Researchers at IBM have contested that estimate, perhaps because they own the fastest classical supercomputer, and dialed it back to only two and a half days. Whatever the true number, we know Google's processor is really fast faster than any other computer preceding it, and powered by quantum technology. What do I mean by quantum? Well, that's a very large can of worms. Fortunately, our guest in this episode, science writer George Musser, is going to help us unpack what it all means. George has been writing about astronomy and physics for over 25 years. He's a contributing editor at Scientific American Magazine and author of the book, Spooky Action at a Distance, all about the strange phenomena called quantum entanglement. So stay tuned and prepare to feel your consciousness expand as we jump into the weirdness of the quantum realm. But before we dive in, head over to sciencecentric.com support to help keep this independent podcast going. We accept direct donations via Patreon and also get a kickback on any purchases made through our website at no added cost to you. You can also show your support by sharing this episode with a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or following us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at ScienceCentric. All right, enough of that. Let's get on to the good stuff. George Musser, I'm so glad to have you here. Finally on the podcast, I've been trying to get you on. Um, for those, those uh, in the audience that don't know, George and I have known each other quite a while now, I think. Um, we worked together for a period of time at Scientific American Magazine. Uh, he, he starred in many of my videos that I produced when I was there. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and, um, and you're just always so interesting to talk to um, because I think we come from a little bit, uh, the worlds we come from are pretty different. Um, uh -huh. you, you, you are deep into the physics and math and you know astrophysics astronomy stuff and i'm come from a biology background uh primarily genetics a little bit of physics um muddled my way through um enough to get to get my degree done but um but anyways welcome thank you so much and it's always a pleasure eric <laughs> you've had some great conversations over the years we really have some some adventures together yeah for sure um yeah we could talk about that maybe in a little bit yeah um so I've been wanting to get you on the podcast, and I think this this time period is really good because there was some news out uh, from Google last week that, mm. the, and a paper published, I believe, um, about the quantum supremacy, um, which sounds like a nefarious 
plot to overthrow the world. Maybe a James Tom Clancy's next novel, right? Yeah, James Bond. James Bond movie. Um, so, and and you you really are like an expert on you know quantum. Um, I mean, you've written a book, an entire book on quantum entanglement uh, called Spooky Action at a Distance. Um, and it's, I, I think the timing is great, but, um, you know, what, maybe for people that aren't super knowledgeable about quantum physics and stuff like that, I mean, what, what does quantum actually mean? I, you know, the, the, the term gets thrown around a lot, uh, in marketing speak and, you know, new age gurus and things like that. So when we're talking about quantum, anything, quantum supremacy, quantum mechanics, quantum entanglement what it, what does that mean you know it's a it's a good question and it's it's one of these words that acquires its meaning by being used in a sense um, the, the original kind of etymology of the term is the idea of of discreteness so the idea that nature is particulate it's not a, a continuous fluid it's actually can be broken down into little particles and moreover that the particles have uh, properties like energy or momentum that are discrete in their values. They can't take on any values. It's more like a ladder of values. But that original etymology, we're so beyond that now in in the understanding of the world. Uh, for a long time, I would then default to saying, well, quantum physics is the physics of the micro world. It's the physics of the atoms, the electrons, photons, particles, but I can't do that either because <laughs> one, one realization really from early on but more reinforced of late is that quantum physics applies to everything in the world, mm -hmm. uh, including us. And that's kind of the, one of the mysterious or unresolved puzzles of quantum theory is how it can apply to us when we seem so unquantum in our nature. So some aspects – of, of the quantum realm that came from the particle, the atomic level, are things like wave behavior, that hmm. particles had this kind of odd, uh, particles and us. So when I use the word particle from now on, it'll, yeah. there should be an, an us. In the, <laughs> well, right? we're, we're, and we're essentially a collection of particles, right? I mean. We are, but moreover, we can be taken in our entirety, our entire body could, in principle, be considered a particle for the purposes of the analysis. So it's not just that we consist of particles, it's that also at the level of the human or of the, uh, the dust grain or the moon or any, of the, any objects, you can treat them for some purposes as a single entity. Okay. So I can talk about myself. And this is like when you go back to the Schrodinger cat. Maybe we should start with the Schrodinger cat because I think that's a very illuminating yeah. experiment and the whole purpose of which so Schrodinger uh, developed that idea in 1935 and the idea was precisely to connect the it wasn't to make cats into this kind of weird icon of science <laughs> it was to connect what's happening at the atomic level with what's happening at the of uh, the macro level and yeah. actually that there would be a connection that if a particle can be put into this weird state of ambiguity uh-huh this is one of the features of quantum physics, a uh, weird and state that seems to us ambiguous uh, between saying uh, saying uh, it's decayed or not decayed or it's here or there yeah. or 
it's up and down. It depends. There's different things you can you can say it's X and Y, and the X's and the Y's can vary. So, so for people that are listening, Sorry. the the Schrodinger's cat, uh, it's it's a it's there were no actual cats involved. It's a thought experiment um, where where this cat is put into a box, right? And there's there's this sort of mechanism um, on the outside of the box that is influenced by by particles. And if the particles hit this detector in a certain way, it will release a gas and kill the cat. And if if it doesn't hit it in a certain way, then it doesn't, and the cat stays alive, right? So, right. So, so that the point being that the the the, the 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 atom in this case is in some kind of ambiguous condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can parse what that means because that's actually interesting in its own right. But just take this ambiguity; it's ambivalent. It could either have decayed or not decayed at any instant. So it's 12 o'clock, it could have decayed or not decayed. It's 1 o'clock, it could have decayed or not decayed. So we don't know what state at any given time. Um, and then that ambivalence is transmitted to the cat. Uh-huh. And, it, it, and the original experiment was through this kind of poison gas, but it, it can be done in other ways as well that are not so morbid. Yeah. And But the point was is that the cat then enters a state of ambivalence, in this right. case between being alive and dead. And you wonder, well, first of all, how can a cat be alive and dead or, <laughs> or in an uncertain condition of, of being alive or dead? Yeah. Second, that when you um, open the box, you look in, you see a cat alive or dead. Right. So not only is it ambivalent, which is already bad enough, but <laughs> its ambivalence is never directly observed. And this is a very peculiar feature of the quantum world that it seems to work on on two levels. There's this kind of base fundamental level where there's ambivalence and weird effects. And then there's the the higher level in which we operate where we don't see those. Mm -hmm. And the connection between them has never been clear. This is a century after, literally a century after they started, Einstein started to develop the theory and it was others came in that we still don't know. And the same kind of ambivalence, this kind of two-level description is a problem with waves and particles. You sometimes hear, is it a wave or is it a particle? The wave is basically the lower level, mm-hmm. and the particle is the higher level. We don't see these waves, right. these putative waves in nature. We only see particles, but they behave like there's waves. Yeah. So why? And this right. kind of goes under the rubric of what's called the measurement problem. And you could probably argue that it's the number one unresolved problem in physics. Because everything else in physics astrophysics, galaxies, universe, everything kind of hinges on the on this problem. Yeah. It kind of, it's always, all of those things are in a way mysterious and if we don't understand how these levels of quantum mechanics relate to one another. So so you're saying that, I mean, the, to bring it back to Schroeder, Schrodinger's cat, essentially that cat is in this state of kind of quantum flux, if you will, or flux between... Uh, alive and dead but but that's not I mean that's not how we experience the world right I mean so when you're saying that like we are quantum it's it's I mean it just doesn't make any rational sense to think it because we don't experience the world that way we experience it in this very like Newtonian you know either or sort of state it's not this weird quantum things popping in and out of existence various states so like what I mean I, I I don't know. I guess I just don't get it. But well, this well, you shouldn't get it because it's not God. 
it's not something human beings have really done. Now, people can kind of analyze it. So there's been a lot of progress on kind of sharpening um, the question here. Yeah. But ultimately, and I think you grammatically had it there, you start with an and and you, you end up with an or. And it's not clear how that conjugation or that um, conjunction changes there. Yeah. And why the we can indirectly see that our objects in the world have a wave-like character. And yeah. what that means in terms of particles is the particle could be here and there. Yeah. Now, let me actually footnote that because I want to come back to what that actually means. But for the time being, simply we can simply say the particle's here and there. But when we look at it, of course, it's either here or there. Right, right. And how does that occur? We can sort of get at it. There's, there's ideas of what, what are, what's known as decoherence partly answer the question it, it kind of it, it answers the the issue of categories that the, the here there of other places those boxes spatial in this case boxes we put things in can be understood in through this process of decoherence but the final decision which box does the particle land in is it here there on the moon <laughs> wherever is not is not yet resolved yeah and and there's a lot of ideas that people have put out uh, that are all very interesting. This is where you start to get into ideas of multiple universes and there are ways to yeah. understand this multiplicity of possibilities. Now, one thing, I come back to that footnote that I had said earlier. It's partly a question of our our categories. So to take, to take, to take the cat mm-hmm. for, as an example, the cat is... Uh, in human or even cat terms, alive or dead. Mm-hmm. Those are very important categories, alive or dead, to us. Mm-hmm. However, they don't exist in the quantum world. So right. when the cat is put into this ambivalent state of alive or dead, it's not ambivalent in quantum terms. It's a perfectly well-defined state that just so happens to sound very weird. The cat is alive plus dead. Mm-hmm. And you can make it maybe kind of 40% alive and 60% dead, or you can go to 70, 30, you can kind of <laughs> those. And those are all, all meaningful states in, in quantum theory. Yeah, right. So when the cat is moved into one of them, it's not that it, and this is why when people say it's alive and dead, it's a little bit of a grammatical slippage mm-hmm. because the, it implies an uncertainty or an ambivalence that actually the quantum does not possess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's just that the quantum... Uh, state doesn't translate into a human category or yeah. uh, line category that well. I'm probably throwing too much out. <laughs> well, it's I, I I think maybe you could say that it's just it's very unintuitive or in un, unintuitive to us to think in th- in those terms. Um, yeah, and that's that's good. You kind of want that because you want physics to tell you the world is weird. Yeah, and, or rather, the world is different from our intuition. Because yeah. our intuitions evolved on that savanna, we're chasing antelope or whatever yeah. we were doing back then, and, <laughs> and it's, it's you know it's it's actually we should just be grateful that we can understand the microphysics at all, given that yeah. our brain didn't. So it's going to seem strange and to there, us. And there's all kinds of things happening around us that that our brains and bodies are not attuned to, right? I mean, there's all kinds of right. electromagnetic waves zipping around us at any given time, and we just we're just a oblivious because our eyes and our sensory organs can't pick those up so i mean maybe this right. is just 
beyond the capacity of our, you know, what we evolved uh, to, no, to I, comprehend. I, one thing I do want to argue, I have a forthcoming book that will explore some of the interconnections between physics and neuroscience, psychology, and AI. Yeah. And one thing I'm going to argue in that book is that our brains can understand this, that I'm going to have a kind of hopeful outcome here. I think there's a kind of universality to human uh, reasoning that has gotten us this far, and there's no reason to think it'll stop working now, even for these big questions of yeah. what is consciousness or what is the quantum world or yeah. what's the beginning of time. It, but we have to find a, a, a way to do it. Yeah. And that's where we're stuck right now. Right. Hey there. We'll get back to the interview shortly. I just wanted to take a moment to ask a favor. To continue to bring you great science content, we need your help building our community. There are several ways you can help out. One, tell someone you know about us. Word of mouth carries a lot of weight. Two, follow us on social media. We're at ScienceCentric on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Or number three, write a podcast review on iTunes. Reviews help this podcast get noticed. Thanks for your help, and now back to the show. Um, one thing that, that I wanted to bring up with you is that, um, you know, and I mentioned this at the beginning of, of our uh, conversation, that there are some people in sort of the new age movement that have capitalized on this idea that, that you know, things don't really exist or, or aren't the way that they really are and or we can think about them differently and then that will sort of change our reality and I think on a psychological level that probably makes sense like it's good you know it's that old adage that if you believe you can or you believe you can't you're right you know it's like but on a on a reality level like physical level I mean we can't change our reality just by looking at it right I mean, I think people take that that quantum idea and then they extrapolate it out in, in ways that maybe aren't appropriate. I think I think you're right. I don't want to pick on the New Age movement. Actually, I, I've had the opportunity in the past couple of years to meet with Deepak Chopra. Oh, well, that's great. And and he is really, I just to wax eloquent on him, he's a wonderful, warm-hearted, kindly person who genuinely wants to understand quantum physics as it is. He's He's, he's got his own ideas uh, philosophically and metaphysically that I don't subscribe to, but I don't think there's any uh, effort by him or, or others to distort the theory. They're just, they're genuinely, as we all are, trying to make sense of the world that we live in and, and its meaning for our own lives. Now, having said that, I think that we have to be careful about extrapolations mm -hmm. uh, of, of ideas from really deep physics to our daily world. It is true that by observing things, we alter them. That's true of, of life, everyday life. Uh, this is true of, of the quantum world as well, but there's, it's not really the same thing. Uh, it's a different principle applied in two different contexts. Mm -hmm. uh, we also were interconnected. Uh, you and I, by virtue of the adventures we've had together, have exchanged particles that we carry with us and have a bond between them and in principle, if you could extract them and measure them, they would show a correlation. That's wow. the quantum entanglement. But that doesn't, that's not really the connection between us. That's just kind of a, uh, a product of, of our atomic composition. Yeah. It's, so you can't really understand, I think, 
the deeper aspects of human nature through these physical terms. You can't, people often talk about fields, idea of a, a quantum field. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, a, a technical concept that has a lot to do with the way the world was put together, but it doesn't really, it's not something to meditate on or mention in your yoga class. It's not really <laughs> relevant to that level. So yeah, I, as I am with, with, with other, I, I tend to think of, of, of knowledge as related, but ultimately still stratified that we you know we have physics, we have sociology, we've got uh, kind of moral principles to live by, and they're, yeah. of course, related in, in a sense, but they're not the same. Right, right. Yeah, there's, um, I don't know if you're familiar, I'm, I'm kind of really going on a tangent here, but if you're familiar at all with the philosopher Ken Wilber, do you know him? No. He's like a new age philosopher, but his I, he was trying to put together all these different disciplines into one framework. And so his idea was that, you know, on, on one side you have things that are this kind of interiority, which is consciousness. On the other sa- side, you have exteriority, uh, which is where science shines. Mm-hmm. Um, and interiority would be where like meditation and, and psychology kind of live. And then, um, and then the other axes was, you know, individuals and sort of collectives. So you could, you could kind of put these disciplines into this, this meta framework. Um, I don't know how, how well it really holds together, but it was an interesting idea and, and definitely influenced the way that I think about those things, which is that they're, they're kind of separate domains, um, one dealing with the, the interior, one dealing with the exterior, but cool. I've written, I made a note about that. I want to look at it because my part of this book project, part of what I'm thinking about a lot these days is physics has its own interior and science in general, natural science has its own interior versus exterior dichotomy. And uh-huh. it needs to be, needs to be understood because there are situations that come up where we, are trying to take an objective physical description and relate it to what an embedded observer would see. Uh-huh. Yeah. And often that embedding is not at all obvious and it's not even obvious that the embedded observer will see that same set of laws of physics and you try to understand that and and how to relate those two levels of description. I think that's kind of a lot of thinking in physics uh, foundational physics today kind of comes back it comes up in the multiverse uh, understanding of parallel universes for example the whole reality is countless parallel universes or or parallel worlds or, or parallel realities but we find ourselves in one of them uh-huh. how do we relate those those ideas which one do we find ourselves in can we tell Yeah, yeah. Uh, how does that affect our reasoning to know that we're one of a vast kind of ensemble like right. that. So, so one I one thought is that that this sort of collapsing of possibilities that you see with in the quantum world, maybe those other possibilities exist in another parallel universe. Yeah, there's different ways of thinking about uh, and, and phrasing it. One way is yes, we, there's a bunch of universes, and 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 there's different types. Of, I should say parallel universes that come up in different domains of physics, and maybe they're related. But let's focus on the quantum one mm-hmm. for now. 
so that when I, to take the simplest example, uh, shine a photon at a beam splitter. So it's basically a mirror that's partly uh, silvered. So sometimes uh, the photon will go through and sometimes it'll reflect off. You can actually use that and it is used. You can go online and, and, and look for it as a random number generator. Uh-huh. So if you want to basically have a perfect coin toss for your soccer match or whatever, <laughs> you can actually use this in principle where um, you shine the photon, it goes through. It reflects. It goes through, 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 reflect, reflect, and whatever. That's going to be a completely randomized process. Yeah. So the, the, the question is how to interpret that. And one uh, way to interpret it is uh, there's a lot of universes. In some, it goes through. In some, it reflects off. It's random to us. Uh, it's completely deterministic on the, on the larger scale. Mm-hmm. But we only see a small fraction of that larger scale. And it's random to us because we just happen to be in the universe. So the randomness is kind of on us. Right, right. We happen to be in the universe. And Sean Carroll has a very nice new book um, that goes into this. Of course, there's been a lot of written by me and others on this kind of mini worlds idea. And you have to be a little bit, you have to start thinking about what does it actually mean, another universe? Yeah. So it's, uh, in this context, it doesn't actually mean a, a kind of mysterious patch of planets and stars <laughs> way out there it, it actually means kind of it actually just comes out of a quantum description that within the quantum description there are what we call branches and each branch has uh, the state of the photon and the state of me observing the photon mm-hmm. and those two are disjoint so we're in the same world in a quantum sense, but they seem disjoint from our our kind of classical perspective. So again, it's it kind of comes down to our limitations as observers, and probably they're inherent in what it means to be an observer, to be a conscious agent, mm-hmm. that we are necessarily restricted in this way. Right. But this is was really a great insight of Hugh Everett in the 1950s, that uh, up until then people, well, there have been a range of ideas, but the majority view was that Upon uh, measurement, the wave function, this quantum description, would collapse. Yeah. And the the act of observing that photon, in this case, would cause it to go through uh, or or reflect off that little prism that I or that little mirror I just described. And and they 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 thought this because well we don't see particles both going through and reflecting off. We just see one or the other. Right. Uh, the, ergo, there must be a process to distinguish those two. But Everett's view was actually no; they could go through and reflect off. And it's really our inability to see both. It's kind of our limitations as observers okay. that bias us to seeing one or the other. Yeah. And there's lots of other explanations, by the way. That you know, there's a thousand, well, whatever, large number <laughs> of explanations for what's going on here. Yeah. Uh, this goes back to this what I call the number one mystery in, in physics right now yeah, uh, is exp- kind of reconciling that. Yeah. Well, and it seems like also I was just thinking that, you know, if, if this was true that there were, there were these multiple states of existence and you think of all of the coin tosses essentially that have gone on since the beginning of the universe. I mean, if there was another universe, if there was a parallel universe, it, it could be so radically different 
than our own because it seems like a lot of these things, um, again, I'm looking at this from a bio- biologist perspective, are just sort of happy accidents that, yeah. that, 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 you know, at least in biological terms, things could have gone very differently. But there's a, there's a history there of, of, of the way that things went almost randomly. I don't know if that applies also to like astrophysics and stuff, but. Um, yeah, this randomness is pervasive. <clears throat> now, Ted, the, the science fiction writer Ted Chang has an amazing uh, new book of short stories, I think it's called Exhalations, that everyone's got to read who cares anything about quantum physics because there's two stories in there that bear on this question, kind of spin out some of the meaning of it, and it addresses the very question you brought up, uh, where he describes how after the, in this case, this photon passes through, and you can kind of follow those two sets of, of, of worlds, those two worlds, they very quickly diverge. And he's got some very interesting analysis of the divergences and the human meaning that that has. So there's a, a George and an Eric who've split mm-hmm. off and are having their own consciousness. If this, if this theory is true, if this yeah. interpretation is true, who are having our, their own um, independent existences that very quickly diverge. And uh, it's actually, it's like a, it's an example of the butterfly effect in yeah. meteorology where small, a small change. I think and he, he <clears throat> described some uh, study, fictional, but probably based on, on fact, where after like six months, the world is completely different. Mm-hmm. The, 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 there's no correlation at all in the, certainly the weather patterns, um, even from a single particle. That, yeah, know, yeah. Can have a huge effect. And this, this is one kind of weird and interesting and puzzling aspect of this many worlds interpretations precisely that understanding kind of the divergences among, among these worlds yeah. and calculating the probabilities that then um, arise. Yeah. And, and as you said, it's, it's, it's probably hard and it gets back to that question of if there are these little things going on with, amongst particles, does that then, then translate to the, to the, to the larger world, which is that fundamental question. So maybe there are little, particle mini verses but but maybe not for a separate george and a separate eric you know yeah so anyway that 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 story is one of the most provocative things i've read on quantum mechanics um in a, in a while so yeah really got me thinking about what this would really mean yeah that's um yeah yeah i'll have to check that out Hey, I just wanted to take a quick pause to thank HostGator, this episode's sponsor. HostGator is one of the world's top 10 largest web hosting companies with over 8 million hosted domains. They have around-the-clock support, and all shared web hosting plans include a 45-day money-back guarantee. I've personally used HostGator since 2008 for all of my web hosting needs, and I couldn't be happier. Sign up today using the promo code SCIENCE, and you'll receive 25% off any new hosting plan. Now on with the show. So we've we've definitely um, I think we've done a good job of covering just how weird quantum mechanics is <laughs> and all and some of the implications of of what it means and maybe the limitations of our own mm-hmm. conscious minds in understanding it. But what's interesting is that as as we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, there was this news now that that people are using this quantum weirdness to actually do stuff, and 
And I think that's one thing that people really don't understand is that, you know, quantum mechanics, an understanding of quantum me- mechanics and entanglement is allowing us to do things with that, that we haven't been able to do before in, in sort of an engineering sense. So, so how can we use, how, how did Google use this strange phenomena to, to create this supercomputer that can churn through tons of information and spit out something that would take an IBM computer, you know, 10,000 years or whatever they said. I forget. Yeah, right. <laughs> so just, just to provide a little bit of context here, um, quantum mechanics, I mean, being a theory of the world, of course, is going to have technological applications to it because it's such a pervasive set of principles that are applying here. And it have indeed been used in different ways for lots of like the laser, mm-hmm. the transistor, um, solar cells. These are technologies that involve quantum principles at some level. And kind of what's really happened uh, is we've seen other quantum effects be harnessed. So one was in this quantum entanglement that I spend a lot of time in my book talking about. It's been harnessed for uh, cryptography, mm-hmm. uh, one type of quantum cryptography. And... Uh, essentially it provides a check because of the ways particles are related you can use it as kind of a a way to check if your message has been tampered with Mm -hmm. so if you're trying to communicate and you want to know if someone's listening in there's kind of a a ironclad way using quantum entanglement to tell Mm -hmm. so you can use like I know Signal or one of these apps uh, WhatsApp or whatever that's encrypted you could actually in principle use a quantum encryption and absolutely guarantee the NSA and the Russian hackers aren't listening in on you. And now we're seeing, and it's been developed for 20 or 30 years, uh, since the 80s really, uh, a whole computer based on on quantum principles. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of reasons you would want uh, such a computer. Uh, for one thing, the, and there's, the different aspects of quantum physics help you with that. One is that a quantum uh, particle or a quantum system of particles is extremely information rich. So normally, if I have three particles, just take a simple event, okay. I put three bits of data on that. Right. So one bit on each particle. But in the quantum world, I can actually put two to the three, eight bits actually even there's a multiplier on that so actually even more than eight bits but just to take the basic scaling here eight bits on that because what's happening here is the data is basically collectively being held by those three particles they're not just limited to each particle acting independently but there's relations these entanglement relations in fact among them that allow them collectively to hold more information and it scales up exponentially so four gives you 16 then 32, and every time you add a particle, you double uh, a particle that has two uh, states, as, yeah. a, as a, these particles usually so, do. So let me let me pause there just for a second because yeah. I, I think yeah. we 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 talked to you threw in a couple of things that people might not Good. understand. Good. That um, so one is the way that bits in computer language typically work is there's a one or a zero. Right, so there's two states that each bit can be in, and that's that really underwrites all of our computer language. 
that's that's right am i saying that correctly yes okay yes. <laughs> and then quantum entanglement is and maybe you can explain it better than i can but uh, in fact i know you can because you wrote a whole book on it but is there a way to to explain that in like a sentence or two so that people can understand um just on a basic level what entanglement means yeah i don't think there's any need to even give a full description of entanglement because it's an interesting phenomena i think this in this case what's important is there's a collective storage of information among these particles okay that they're stored by by virtue of their relations among among them so what uh you can, for instance, say, uh, what's what's a good way to put this? In the in the case of those three particles, mm-hmm. you can imagine that the three particles are, uh, and if, say each particle itself can be described as zero, zero or one. Each particle is a bit of yeah. data. So you might have zero, 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 one, zero, yeah. one, zero, et cetera. And there's eight of those possibilities. And it turns out that all of those eight are present to some degree or can be present to some degree in the system. And again, that's almost like, it's almost like a cat's cradle of relations among those three particles is maybe the best way to think of it. Uh-huh. That, um, so this is separate from some of the other implications that entanglement might have. In this case, we're just looking at um, the relations among these particles such that it's it, the, the 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 whole is more than the sum of its parts. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. So that gives you huge kind of scale up, obviously. So the the Google system recently shown had I think fifty three working bits in it. Yeah. And the other companies like IBM, Intel, and uh, and, and Rigetti and and so forth have similar numbers. You know. 50 or 20 or 30, but roughly the same number. So they have two to the 30, two to the wow. 50, two to the 53 possible uh, states or possible kind of places to put the informa- or information because it, it's the whole is so vastly more than some of its parts. In fact, the parts at that point don't even really matter. Yeah. The whole is really taken over. Yeah. So you've got 53 to two to the 53 is just like, you know, you've, um, it's an incredible uh, increment. Yeah. So that's really one of the specifically quantum advantages uh-huh. here. So once you, and just to riff on that a little bit, once you've got this incredibly compact way of storing information that just a handful of particles can store all the information humanity has generated in principle, yeah. you can manipulate it. So it's not just that you're storing it compactly, it's that everything you then do, every operation you perform acts on all two to the 53 effective logical bits of, of data that are there. Yeah. And this comes in handy really, and this is what my Quanta article on, that you were referring to on machine learning really yeah. uh, talks about for machine learning because you can manipulate an enormous matrix of numbers, yeah. an enormous grid of numbers. And, what, and we can link to that in the, in the show notes, by the way, right. for people listening. Right. Yeah. With, a, with a single or few operations. And basically, the idea is in the future, the, right now all those matrix calculations and machine learning and AI are done by GPUs, by graphical processor units right. that were developed for gaming, right. really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, I think in, in 10 years or X years, they'll be done by QPUs, quantum systems, because the quantum basically can 
also manipulating matrices, but even better than a graphical processing unit can. It just it ma- quantum mechanics lives for matrices. It's matrix based. Yeah. The whole algebra of it is matrix algebra. So if you can live in that realm, and there's problems to do that. I don't want to minimize. There's conceptual and technical problems. But if you could, you'd have this enormous advantage. Yeah. So when you're so, when you're talking about graphical processing units uh, for gaming and the way that those scale is, is it it's not exponential. It's just a you're just running more processors in parallel, correct? I mean, I think there's some parallel, a high degree of parallelism on it. But I'm not really familiar with the architecture. Okay. But ultimately, they're they're classical devices. They're they're limited by the classical physics. So yeah. if they want to multiply. Uh, you know, a column of numbers and a, a row of numbers to give you a, a matrix or whatever, or to give you a single number, they're performing one by one multiplications. And maybe they've got a good way of doing that. Probably they do. They have a number of multipliers working in unison. Uh, I should know this better because actually one of my projects as a college student, I interned at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and one of the things we did was work with parallel processors of the sort. Oh, so. okay. It's just into my past. Yeah, yeah. It's been a few um, years, though. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, they, but the quantum is just a whole different yeah. degree of capacity. It naturally does it all with a, with one go. Uh-huh. Where it won't have to just go multiply this, 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 this all in a row. They'll just do it. Yeah. And you know, it acts collectively on the whole system. And as I said, that's just what you want for a lot of machine learning applications. I, I the the thing and and I did read your article. Um, it just seems to me like a bunch of gobbledygook. Because or it, let me let me let me put it another way. It just seems like I don't know how you could get it like an answer out of this system. It just seems like it would just spit out a bunch of non- nonsense. Because how do these how do the all these um, parts like interact together to produce a result that you want. Maybe you yeah. could give us like an example of, of a task that a, you know, a quantum computer would be able to do better than a, than a classic, classical computer. Yeah, well, there's a couple of stages before I can like trot out specific <laughs> examples because there's a lot of subtleties here. Yeah. But basically, the, you put your, put your finger on the difficulty with this mm-hmm. system. So, all, I mean, there's nothing mysterious going on here. It's just a, a natural system that happens to, in its workings, you rely on matrices. Uh-huh. It's just like saying if I threw a baseball, it I and I use calculus to to calculate out its path and when it'll fall back on the ground. Um, the, the, it's as though the baseball embodies calculus. So. Similar thing going on here. If I can encode uh, the quantum systems run by matrices, the baseball by calculus. I mean, in, in a loose um, sense, of course. Okay. So, the if I can get my data in a form that the system embodies, it will then naturally, of its own accord, do the the calculations for me, and then I have to extract it back out. So it's it's. The problem is the encoding and the decoding, actually. A system's just doing what comes naturally to it. It's just following the laws of physics that apply to it. Yeah. In that case of matrix algebra, there's nothing kind of gobbledygooky about that. It's like everything in, in the world follows 
its its own set of principles. And if you can somehow work in its language, mm-hmm. then it'll just do it, do it on its own. Yeah. Um, and that that but that's the trick is you need to translate your problem into something it recognizes, and then translate the answer it gives you back into something you recognize. So with ordinary computers, we're always undergoing translations. You're translating a key press into an electrical signal that puts it in the microprocessor's language uh-huh. then does through the, the transmission of electrical signals what it, it, it is want to do yeah. then you need to at the other end put it back into a, a pattern of light on your screen let's say right right nothing bizarre and, and over all that's changing with the quantum is now there's a different set of principles at work i see okay that makes sense. Yeah, I think that helps. Now, the yeah. challenge of these systems is the translation part, and the challenge is heightened for these quantum systems because of the vast amounts of data that are required. So somehow you can take a vast amount of data and compress it down, get it into the quantum system, then unpack it on the other end. And that's that's really, really where the challenge lies. Yeah. Now, there's ways, and this is kind of getting to some of the applications that you're you're you wanted me to, to, to get yeah. um, for the the system to help you with the unpacking process. So if you have two to the 53 bits you put in and then you get two to 53 bits out, I mean, you, you, you might be waiting forever for that, right? It's going to take a long time to dribble that data back, right. back out right. through ordinary wire. Yeah. But if you have the computer itself manipulate the data, so only you need like four bits to come out, like it packs all the essential information into just a few of those channels, then you're you're golden. Right. And the way it can do that is through the just a second basic feature of quantum physics called interference. Okay. So what you do is you have the different data within the system, maybe all the way up to two hundred two to the fifty three, are interacting with one another. Sometimes they cancel out, sometimes they reinforce. And if you do that cleverly, and that's the trick of course, you can get out a an answer very very compactly. Okay. Um, otherwise, in fact, you really are going to get a gobbledygook. You're going to get us. Oh, you have a wire. It's going to take one of those two fifty three and randomly choose one for you, in essence, and give you one out the wire. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm kind of brushing your lot under the rug. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I get it. So, and here's the here's the thing. We physicists only know of a few examples where that kind of compact description will ha- will occur. So one is search. Uh-huh. So basically search a database. It, there's a there's a, a way to arrange this interference such that you can very efficiently search a, a large database. So if you were to take those two to fifty three bits and actually encode the corpus of, of Facebook images, you could somehow on the other end search those images and come out with a puppy or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so, so, so that, that's what, so, one. And, and the other yeah. I just want to get out is, is uh, factoring. So there's ways of factoring number, numbers into their prime factors very efficiently using this. And that's really what people are, are when they talk about quantum, the application of quantum computer, that's the one they mean. Yeah. Because factoring does all sorts of other things as well. So do you, is Google's primary interest in this as a search uh, tool for finding images or finding the thing that you want? Yeah, I mean, I think Google has a lot of interest in it. They're obviously mega company. Yeah, they, they, 
they, they do everything nowadays. Yeah. Probably they they want to do lots, some of these machine learning applications early on. Um, I'm guessing. Yeah. You want to test them. Uh, <laughs> it's a little bit far to really know, but that that's an early application because it doesn't require the machine to work as accurately mm-hmm. as as other like their like the uh, the factoring would. Yeah. Or the search would, but ultimately, I'm sure they want to do search and factoring, and there's a few other algorithms as well yeah. that can harness this quantum interference effect to, to great things. Now, the, what's happened with the Google supremacy, so-called yeah. quantum supremacy experiment, is really akin to the Wright brothers' flight. It's just a proof of principle. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've heard it, anyone else put it this way, so I'm going to give you kind of the way I think of it. Uh-huh. So up until now, if you want to understand a quantum computer, you actually you're better off simulating it on a classical computer. So IBM actually has a quantum computer online. You can register, you can go on, you can actually run a uh, simple app on their online cloud-based quantum computer. Interesting. Uh, and they have a button there called simulator, or, and you're actually faster running it on the simulator. So simulator is just a regular computer, applies the laws of quantum physics, and tells you what the quantum computer would say. <laughs> So a quantum computer is faster run as an as a simulation or emulation than as it native. What's changed with, with supremacy is just flipped the other way. The quantum computer now is faster than its simulator. Uh-huh. So it isn't so much that it would take ten thousand years or three days or whatever to run that that calculation on a supercomputer. All that matters is it just it flipped. It's faster to run it on the quantum computer. It's faster to do it in on the actual thing yeah. than it is on a simulation. And now that's going to be true for the rest of, of eternity. So now we're entering this kind of new realm where quantum computers are natively faster. And it's going to be a matter of finding the right algorithm for them to run. Yeah. Um, so when, you, when you're talking about the difference between a classical computer and a quantum computer what what does that mean physically like what what are they made of that's different yeah i mean we're we're still in an experimental realm so the the final form these quantum computers take uh who knows they'll probably be something you can plug in on your usb port or whatever in the future Uh, but for now they're they're pretty in you know massive pieces of apparatus fill up the lab yeah um typically it depends on the technology but typically they have to be super cool so there's a cryogenic system that brings them down to very low temperature that reduces the error and the kind of the, the noise in the system and then again depending on the technology you might use lasers or a microwave pulse so the in the microwaves you have for the microwaves you have antennas around the system that beam uh, microwaves or receive them out of the system to kind of do their input and output. Um, some of the systems use magnetic interactions, electrical. So there's, there's a wide variety. In fact, that's what's so fun about this is there's, there's really a, a thousand flowers blooming on this. There's a lot of different yeah. technologies. The Google group uses uh, superconducting qubits, but others use ions. And one kind of Technologies. Uh, there's a group in in Netherlands working on it. Uses just ordinary silicon. Uh-huh. It just 
and this is the maybe the most conservative technology and maybe the one that will ultimately succeed because it's actually just using ordinary lithography on a silicon wafer. Uh-huh. Storing the, the qubits, storing the quantum information just by electrons, ordinary particles like we have now in, yeah. in these computers. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess there's a lot of different ways to get that the, that quantum entanglement state, different particles. Um, I just wanted to mention a, a vi- the videos that we made on that. Um, if people want to know more about quantum entanglement, um, we have one video that kind of, this is when we worked at Scientific American. We did a video about um, the principle of quantum entanglement um, using a, a kind of ridiculous experiment um, with with people. And then um, we actually went to a lab where they somebody had set up a table with lasers and crystals that that can can achieve that as well. So um, I just wanted to plug that because um, we put it, we put it, we put our heart and souls into those videos, and glad that people yeah. are watching them. But um, yeah, and there we focus on kind of the kind of the mysterious qualities of, of entanglement. That in particular, it doesn't seem explicable by mechanistic physics. So in physics, we always want to explain things. We want to say, well, we're going to break it down. And uh, the clock works because the gear turns and the pendulum and <laughs> whatever. And that's something you can't seem to have an equivalent description for with entanglement. Right. It's part of the mystery of it. Now, given entanglement, if, if you don't want to explain it, if you just want to use it, then you're in the realm of quantum computers and there's no problem there. You just use it. It's only when you want to get at it at a deep level. And I'm actually... I think quantum computers may help ultimately with that because we're just better do stuff with entanglement. And often we just learn by doing. By doing a lot of with it, we're going to go, ah, I'm getting to get it now. Yeah. I kind of get why it does. Yeah. Why, and we may understand it or we may see its limits. A lot. Some people, it's a minority view, but some people think we're going to hit a brick wall. Uh-huh. That there's going to come a point where the quantum computers won't work. Yeah. I don't. I don't think that. I think quantum physics is here to stay but there may come a point where it doesn't work and then that's a Nobel Prize right there yeah. and as you just get on the plane already to Stockholm because <laughs> that's going to be telling us the limits of quantum physics right right interesting so the, so the application will tell us more about the principles themselves that's I think so that's so interesting um, well we're we're at about an hour I think we could I think we could probably talk for like eight hours on this <laughs> But for the yeah, sake of the podcast, or more, <laughs> um, I think for the sake of the podcast, we should we should probably wrap it up. Um, I did want to want I did want to ask you one thing because you 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 mentioned you're looking at you know quantum um, quantum computing and AI and mm-hmm. um, you know machine learning with this incredible computing capacity. You know, um, like. Are, are, do we need to be worried that that these machines are going to replace us? I mean, can can they are they like better? Do they are they going to work better than the human brain can, or does the human brain sort of in, already use some of this phenomena in in the way that it functions? I know that um, a couple of episodes um, back, speaking to a neuroscientist about how the brain works, he said that's the fundamental. Uh, question in neuroscience is like they don't really understand how it all all sort of works together. So maybe there maybe there is some 
quantum uh, principles underlying how our actual brain works. Uh, what do you think? So there's about really that? two questions there. Yeah. One, does this heighten our worries about AI? And second, does it mean that there's quantum effects in the brain? Yeah. I think if you're worried about AI or not worried about AI, the quantum aspect's not going to really change things. It's going to be a long, long time before these quantum computers can outpower the Google uh, and Amazon, um, you know, data centers, which are massive. Um, so it, right now, it's really more of a niche technology. Mm -hmm. And this whole question of whether we humans are existentially doomed will be resolved one way or the other <laughs> by the time these quantum computers uh, scale up. So if you're worried, you're still worried. If you're not worried, no reason to start worrying. Right. It's, it's a separate debate. Yeah. And I, I go back and forth on it. I, right now, I tend to be optimistic, actually. I don't think we're, we're going to be replaced because I think humans are basically going to enter the, that new era as a highly general type of, of, of cognitive uh, machine and robot. Um, we won't be better at any one thing. We'll be worse at driving, worse at chess, worse at go. But we'll be the only thing on the planet that can do them all. And there'll be some benefit uh, to that. But th that's a separate set of questions we can come back to. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's been a lot of discussion about quantum effects in the brain. And I do think, um, and there's a lot of controversy, And I do, but I do think that the success of quantum computers gives you pause because if the quantum computers are so useful, why hasn't nature or has nature yeah. after billions of years of evolution basically stumbled on those principles? It may well have. Now, I think if it has, it won't be a general explanation for consciousness yeah. as Roger Penrose or Stu Hameroff would say. That's just my opinion. Yeah. I don't think it's a general, I think it might have a specialized application. If it has an application, it will be specialized, mm -hmm. much as quantum computers will be in our technological world. So there may be some aspects of perception and cognition that quantum helps with. And the examples that have come out so far in biology, so you know more about this probably than I do, is photosynthesis. There's thought to be a role for uh, quantum coherence in making it more efficient. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a more efficient process than it should be, and maybe quantum physics helps. So there's, that's a specialized, useful, God knows, uh, but very specialized application. Um, the ability of birds to perceive magnetic fields mm -hmm. might uh, be that there are electrons in the retinas of the birds that are being subtly affected by the magnetic field, changing their quantum superposition, and they, they scale that change up. It's not entirely established in these cases. There's been several books on what's called quantum biology, so you can yeah. Google, Google that or put it on Amazon. I've actually got one on my desk here by Paul Davies recently came out. Uh -huh. um, but I, so there's quite plausible there's somewhere in our body that uses in an essential way these quantum principles mm -hmm. i don't think it's general i don't i don't think our brains do just fine without quantum <laughs> uh, principles overall they we don't need this massive scale up of data that it provides right uh, we don't need the extra connectivity our brains are highly connected classically but there may be something in there that that it does help right 
So it might be a, a, a specific function rather than kind of the, the thing that holds our consci- consciousness together, as you said. It's not, not, yeah, not fundamental. Reason, right. And the reason I think that, one reason I think that is our brains already are highly capable, even without that. So it would just be overkill. Yeah. But also, I don't see how quantum physics could help with the hard problem of consciousness. So the hard problem is that our objective physics doesn't seem to just explain our subjective experience. Mm-hmm. But the objective physics can be Newtonian or quantum. It's still going to have a problem <laughs> with our objective experience. So quantum doesn't help you with that. Right, right. Uh, that's just my take. I mean, others disagree. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's still it's still an objective viewpoint, um, which which actually perfectly brings us back to what we were initially talking, sort of the new age, uh, with about the new age stuff and, and interiority and exteriority. So... Um, I think we'll just have to leave it there. Um, but George, it's so awesome to talk to you. Seriously, um, it's always so interesting. Um, I, I'm really curious to see where this all goes. Hopefully, we'll be be around to, to see it. Um, yeah. And my my hope personally is that all these advances in technology are also going to have applications in medicine and and advance mm. us you know with disease and genetics and all of that stuff and um you know we can put some of these machines to work on those those thorny problems that that we'd rather not uh, you know have people sitting in labs pipetting things and you know <laughs> we can put the machines <laughs> on it so to speak um so where where can people find you where 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 can they get your work where can they get a hand hands on your books that you've written well the bookstores all have it of course but uh, georgemusser.com is my main website um spookyactionbook.com okay which just goes to georgemusser.com so those are really <laughs> identified uh would it be the start or just google google my name okay cool and and you write for you you're still an editor for scientific american contributing so, so i'm what's called a contributing editor uh-huh. so i i do a lot of work for them still although i'm not on the full-time staff anymore yeah and uh i also write for as you say quanta uh-huh. i've written for them and hopefully write for them again and other publications as well cool all right thanks a lot george it's been awesome thanks take care Well, that's it for this show. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Email us at feedback at sciencecentric.com. Also, don't forget, you can support future episodes of this podcast by heading over to sciencecentric.com slash support and making a donation or purchase. The Science Centric Podcast is a FlowSpark Media production. Our audio engineer for this episode was Alexander James. Guest booking was handled by Melissa David. Our intro-outro music comes courtesy of BitBasic. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Eric Olson.